We are uh, still in our Discipleship 102 series, and last week we ended with the story of Nicodemus, who was one of the highest ranking Pharisees. He's a member of the Sanhedrin, um, which is the leading Jewish governing body at this time. And the Sanhedrin can make religious laws, um, but they cannot go so far as putting a man to death. They um, are like a major peacekeeping power within Palestine. They, they have the ear of the Jews and of the Romans. So they're, they're a big deal. And Jesus has antagonized them so badly <laughs> that they're now looking for ways to trap him in a statement so egregious that the people will turn against him and they'll be able to ask the Romans to put him to death. If Jesus is threatening the delicate balance of peace among the people, the Romans will certainly oblige. Now, Nicodemus is alarmed. He thinks there's every possibility that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. But when he comes to Jesus for clarification, Jesus leaves him with more questions than answers. Jesus tells him, God didn't send his son into the world to pass judgment on it, but to save it through him. Whoever believes in him, meaning the son, is not judged. But whoever does not believe in him has already been judged. And here's the verdict. That light has come into the world, but people love the darkness more than the light. Because the things they are doing are evil. They are afraid their deeds will be exposed. The ones doing truth come out into the light. So the things they've done in God will be revealed. And we talked about that verdict last week. And all of a sudden we realized that Jesus has clarified what judgment means to him. In the Hebrew Bible, judgment was all about restoring wholeness. It was God promising to set everything right. Jesus in, tells us that the light, specifically him, reveals any hidden evil, thus stripping it of its power. And he says he's not coming to pass judgment on us because what we've done has already judged us. All he's doing is revealing what is there. He's coming to save us from ourselves. We can believe that, and come to him and be made whole, just as God always promised, or we can persist in our unbelief and evil deeds. Either way, the light is here, and evil has nowhere to hide. As we catch up with the disciples, Jesus builds on what he just told Nicodemus. He tells them, be on your guard against hypocrisy like that of the Pharisees. What is said in the darkness or whispered in secret, will be shouted from the rooftops. Jesus is telling them they absolutely cannot fake this. They must truly, deeply, and wholeheartedly follow God, no matter how dangerous it is. And these are terribly dangerous times. The Sanhedrin, led by Caiaphas, who is himself a Roman appointee, is out to get Jesus. Jesus' disciples have got to be terrified. But Jesus says, don't be afraid of people who can only kill your body. 
God is the only one with authority worthy of fear. But remember, this is God we're talking about. God cares. God cares about sparrows that you sell for pennies. But you, you are worth so much more. The God who cares about sparrows cares so much about you. He has numbered the very hairs on your head. This is so important. Notice that Jesus is not telling the disciples they will be spared from suffering or death in any way. He's telling them that when the bad things happen, they must not be afraid. He's telling them to trust God through it all because God cares more about them than they can ever imagine. The God who knows when each hair falls from our head, this God is with us always, even in the hour of our death. So, Jesus says, don't be afraid to speak up for me in front of them. I will speak up for you in front of the angels of God. Do not disown me, meaning say you reject me or do not know me or are not part of me, or the same will happen to you before the angels of God. And don't worry about what you'll say when powerful people bring you to trial. When the time comes, the Holy Spirit will instruct you in what you should say. Now, those of you who know how this story ends know that later on, one of the disciples listening to this, one of the 12, falls to this very fear. Afraid for his own life, he will end up denying he ever even knew Jesus. Here in this passage we're reading, Jesus says that someone who does that will be disowned. But when it actually happens, Jesus has mercy on this disciple and forgives him three times over and welcomes him back into the mission of spreading the good news. Never, ever underestimate God's mercy. Never take a passage like this and use it as a proof text to bludgeon someone, nor let it cause you yourself fear. If we only had this passage to go on, we might self-righteously believe we could disown or repudiate or reject someone who in fear or weakness denies Christ. And we would be dead wrong. We would be in line with the words, surely, but not with what Jesus actually does in the real life situation. Jesus is merciful. God is merciful. Mercy is more important than any words. There's something else you need to know about this passage. If you're following along in your Bibles, this particular passage is in Luke 12, 4 through 12. And right in the middle of the passage, in verse 10, is a weird sentence that says, Everyone who speaks against the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be forgiven. But whoever slanders the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And you can kind of see a loose connection with the idea of losing your nerve and denying Jesus when you're on trial. 
But the bit about slandering the Holy Spirit makes no sense here. And that should be a red flag to us. As we know, Luke copies a great deal of material from Matthew and Mark, and he often organizes it differently. And chapters 11 through 19, where we are, are where he puts much of the material. The problem is that when he copies from Mark, he tends to miss the chiasms and the intercalations, Mark's carefully crafted literary structures that shed light on these, you know, particular passages that seem incomprehensible. In this case, Luke has lifted a central point, the, the actual middle of an in, intercalation, taken it out of an intercal, the intercalation in Mark and plopped it in here. Now, in Mark, this verse makes perfect sense. And if you're interested, you can find the discussion back in class 101, which is in the series about the teachings and parables of Jesus. Um, but for now... We recognize the verse. We know it originated in Mark. So we're just going to ignore it here. It's it's out of context. Um, and and we'll, we will study it in the context that would be closer to the original. So anyway, as you know, when Jesus teaches his disciples, especially when it's the larger group of 70 disciples, there's no way he has any privacy. It's not like he's got an auditorium private somewhere. There's always a crowd of people listening in. And someone in the crowd pipes up, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. But Jesus says, who made me judge over you? And Jesus turns to the crowd and says, watch out for covetousness. Life is not about how many possessions you have. And he tells them a story. Notice as he tells it that even though the story is directed to the crowd, he's continuing to teach the disciples about the importance of not placing reliance on anything other than God. Once upon a time, Jesus says, there was a rich guy who had a fabulous harvest. It was so massive, he didn't have anywhere to store all those crops. So he thought to himself, I'll tear down my barns and build even bigger ones. Then I can just kick back and relax because I have enough grain to last me for years. But God said to the man, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get all your grain? This is how it will be for anyone storing things up for themselves and not being rich in God. Then Jesus turns from the crowd and says directly to his disciples, do not worry about your life or your body or what you will eat or drink or wear. Life is more than that. Your body is more than that. Worrying doesn't get you anywhere. You will not add a single hour to your life by worrying, so why worry about anything else? God gives clothing to the wildflowers. How much more will he clothe you? Don't run around looking for what you will eat or drink. Don't be anxious about such things. That's what the Gentiles do. 
Your father knows you need them. Instead, look for his kingdom and all these other things will be gathered to you. Do not fear, little flock, for your father is delighted to give you the kingdom. Go, sell everything and give it to the poor and you will have many bags that will never grow old and treasure in heaven that is inexhaustible, where a thief cannot come near it, nor moths destroy it. Tell me where your treasure is, and I'll show you where your heart is. Be dressed with with lamps burning like people waiting to open the door for their master when he gets back from a wedding feast. Not only will their master be pleased with him, but He will have them recline at the table, and he himself will dress as a servant and will serve them. But you must be ready, for the Son of Man will come when you least expect him. If a homeowner knew when the thief was coming, he wouldn't be robbed. Be prepared. So Peter pipes up at this point. "Uh, Wait a minute, Lord, I'm confused. Is this parable for us or for the whole crowd? You see, usually when Jesus speaks in parables, he's talking to the crowd. But for this one, he's looking at the disciples and it sounds an awful lot like it's directed to the disciples. And Jesus answers Peter with a question. Who has the master put in charge? Who gives the rest of the servants what they need? I guess that answers Peter's question. This parable is directed at the disciples. Matthew has an expanded version of this discussion in chapter 24. Apparently, the disciples asked Jesus about this in private later, and they ask him specifically about the end times and when he will be coming. But that conversation is much later chronologically, um, much closer to his death. So we're going to postpone it till then. Jesus continues. Upon his return, the master will be well pleased with the steward who has given the rest of the servants what they need at the proper time. In fact, he'll put that steward in charge of even more. But if that servant thinks to himself, my master is taking a really long time to return, and he begins to mistreat the other servants and eat and get drunk, the master will come back when he least expects it. The master will cut him in two and assign him to the place of unbelievers. Now, as an aside, I want you to remember this is a parable, a story. It's not to be taken literally. Jesus is using extreme imagery so the disciples will remember this. It's an important point, and it's something they tend to get wrong. They keep thinking they're better than everyone else and that they're the boss. Jesus continues. This time, it will be the steward who will be beaten, especially those stewards who know better. Those who deserve a beating but didn't know any better will only be beaten with a few stripes, but much more is expected from the one who is entrusted with much. Now, some of the disciples may be rethinking their positions. (laughs) Do they really want to sell all their possessions? Be given the responsibility of sharing God's love to the people, get arrested, get tried, probably get beaten by the Romans or killed. 
Do they really want to be the ones that God expects more of? Discipleship 102 is very explicit and very scary. Jesus is getting pretty worked up here. He says, I have come to cast fire on the earth. How I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo. I am pressed on every side until it is fully complete. Knowing the end of the story, the fire Jesus longs to cast on the earth has got to be the Holy Spirit. And the baptism he has yet to undergo must be this time of persecution all the way through his crucifixion and resurrection. In our churches today, we often associate water baptism with the death of the old and the resurrection of the new. But Jesus is seeing his literal end of life, his death and resurrection as an additional baptism. How differently might we approach our own death if we see it as simply a baptism in which we pass into a new life? It is here that Luke puts in a teaching that Matthew has some, some place, he put it, Matthew put it earlier. We, and we covered it back then. We covered it in class 106 in the series on the teachings and parables of Jesus. But it makes sense here as well. Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace to the world, but division. And Jesus quotes from a prophecy in Micah 7 that says, from now on, families will be divided, sons against fathers, daughters and mothers and daughters-in-law against each other. Jesus doesn't add this here in, in this passage that we're studying in the New Testament, but the prophecy back in Micah finishes by saying, therefore, I will wait for Yahweh. The God of my salvation will hear me when I fall. I will rise again. Even when I sit in darkness, Yahweh will be my light. Jesus is talking about light coming into the world and piercing the darkness. It is this that will divide people. Being this light is what discipleship is all about. I imagine Jesus gives a meaningful look to his disciples before he turns back to the crowd and says, when you see clouds in the sky, you know it's about to rain. And when the wind blows from the south, you know it's going to be hot. You hypocrites, how can you miss the signs of the present time? You know right from wrong. So don't go to court to let a judge decide. Do what you know is right. Settle your disputes on your way. Or I tell you, the officer will throw you into prison and you won't get out till you've paid every penny you owe. Well, we're going to hop over to Matthew 18 here for a related teaching. It's sort of a standalone teaching, but I put it here because it has to do with how we treat each other as disciples. And it's foundational to how we need to handle our mutual shortcomings. Jesus says, if your brother or sister does you wrong, go to them privately and expose the wrong by shining light on it and refuting it. The Greek here can also take on a harsher connotation of reproving someone, demanding an explanation, or calling them to account. 
But overall, I think the words in this context are better translated as showing the person so clearly what they've done wrong and how they're hurting you that they cannot fail to understand and be convicted in themselves. Also notice, by the way, that the NIV translation specifically notes that the Greek word adelphos used here refers to a fellow disciple, whether man or woman, meaning that female disciples are among them too. The NIV takes care to use the phrase brother and sister here in verse 15, 21, 35, and other places throughout the New Testament. Jesus continues, If going by yourself doesn't work, then take one or two others with you so that their words can add weight to your own. Notice, you go alone first. You don't even mention it to other people until you've done that. You don't gang up on someone. You don't triangulate. You go directly to the person first. Only if they cannot see the wrong based on your words alone, only then do you take others with you who may be able to help articulate it better. If that doesn't work, then you lay it before the community. The word here is ecclesia, the word that comes to mean the church. Obviously, at this point, there is no church per se. So it's possible Matthew added this passage in later, but I don't think so. It it sounds like something Jesus would say in Discipleship 102. And in this case, the community would be the 70 disciples, right? And if that doesn't work, Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. Ouch. This has got to be kept in context. And the context is a discussion between Jesus and the disciples. It says so in the passage. This is how the disciples are to handle a disciple who refuses to acknowledge what the light has shown to be true. Notice that the premise here is that the disciple has done wrong towards you, not that they got their theology wrong or are doing something you don't like. This is for a situation where they have actually harmed you in some way. If this is the case, If they are a disciple, if they are harming you, and if they cannot be convinced of it by you in private, by a small group in private, or even by all the disciples, then it makes sense that they're not functioning as a disciple. It's okay, Jesus says, to have boundaries. They aren't aren't going in the same direction the disciples are. They're going another way, like Gentiles or tax collectors do. Let them go their way. You don't have to let them hurt you. At this point, someone, probably one of the men in the crowd, asked Jesus if he's heard about how Pontius Pilate had mixed the human blood of certain Galileans with their sacrifices. Now, that's pretty gross, and we don't have any more details of what might have happened. As you know from the lesson last week, Pontius Pilate is the local prefect, a sort of governor. He's a relatively high-ranking Roman, 
who commands the troops occupying Judea. He is focused on putting down any hint of rebellion. During major events, such as Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, where the Jews flock to Jerusalem and there is potential for an insurrection, he would have called for backups from the larger Roman contingent in Syria. But the man is asking Jesus, what the man is asking Jesus about seems to be, how could God let something like this happen while they, these Galileans were worshiping? God would surely protect worshipers unless somehow they were wicked themselves. And Jesus picks up on this underlying question. Jesus says, no, don't get the idea that those Galileans were worse than anyone else just because of what happened to them. Remember when the Tower of Siloam fell here in Jerusalem and killed 18 people? Those people weren't any more guilty than anyone else living in Jerusalem either. Everyone will perish unless they repent. Now, perish can mean being lost, like sheep are lost. Or it can mean being ruined or destroyed or even marred, as in being less than whole. The word encompasses all these meanings. And the word repent means to change your intention, to change your mind, to change your purpose. Jesus is very clearly telling the people that everyone is rushing headlong down a path that is leading them straight to loss and death unless they repent, unless they change their minds. Those poor Galileans or those folks killed in that tragic accident are no worse than anyone else. Jesus is saying, you cannot look at a tragedy or misfortune and say that God did that to someone because of their sins. That's not what's happening. They're no worse than anyone else. He's saying, don't judge other people. Look to the blank in your own eye. God is merciful. And to emphasize the point, Jesus follows this up with a parable. Once upon a time, a landowner had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he went to see if it had any fruit, but there wasn't any. So he went to his gardener and said, I've been checking on this fig tree for three years now, and it still hasn't produced any fruit. Cut it down. It's a waste of soil. But the gardener says, Master, leave it one more year in my care. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. And if it still bears no fruit, cut it down. Jesus ends the parable there. I think this parable has a lot of depth to it. And it's not one we tend to focus on. So let's take some time in our breakout groups to dig into this a little more. No pun intended about the digging. Um, and if the questions confuse you, just, you know, ignore the questions and know that that the intent is to dig, look more closely into this parable. Welcome back. I hope nobody got cut off mid-sentence. Um, so who did you figure was the fig tree? <laughs> We say all of us. Everybody. All right. That sounds good to me. 
And who who did you figure was the landowner? Thank God. All right. All right. Um, and in terms of the nuance here, did you did you think about how God was being portrayed here? How is God being portrayed? What what kind of attitude does this landover landover have? I don't remember us discussing God being the landowner. Oh, I didn't write you, that down. Uh, I think I get that. I was thinking about the gardener. I apologize. Gotcha. Okay. Who was the <laughs> landowner then? Are you like our answers? We're us. We're we're in all of it. We're in we, all we, of it. We are all of it. Ooh, interesting. No, I love Mar- it. Mary is the one that came up with that. Yeah. Very interesting. So the the people who are like the landowner, what characteristic is being displayed here as the landowner? Impatience. Okay. Anyone judging? Judging? Judging. Results oriented, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. Um Although they they waited three years for fruit, right? That's pretty patient. <laughs> oh, it's all relative. <laughs> okay. But there's certainly some expectation of the fig tree producing, right? Um, and it's for the benefit of a landowner? Landowner. Yeah, he's the one looking for fruit. He, he he wants to eat this fruit. Okay. Okay. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking, thinking not nearly as broad as y'all. <laughs> so I was thinking of God as the landowner. I was thinking, you know, the, that they are making God in their own image. They are thinking of God as being harsh. Um, and so I like y'all's solution a lot better. So who so so who is the gardener? Are are we all the gardeners? Who is who? How did what did y'all say about the gardener? Okay, we said anyone that wants to wait and help, and then also we talked about and and God is the gardener too, because there was a lot of discussion about how. Tending to that fruit tree and the manner in which you care for it to help it produce what you might and might not do. Talk to me some more about that. I'm going to call on Erica. She had great thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I was talking about how it says that the gardener will dig around it and fertilize it. So I... I thought that was a much a much gentler way of coming to, to support someone. Like he's not cutting it, he's not trying to fix it, he's not trying to change it. He's digging around. So in my mind, it's like coming along, supporting it, loving it, um, nourishing it, giving it air, right? Mm-hmm. And giving it air the to breathe that, and to grow. Mm-hmm. That it wasn't cutting it, but. Yeah, like maybe a pruning, but then back to Erica's point, pruning would be much much harsher also than just digging around fertilizing. Yeah. Of course, well, that, I guess that depends on 
your view of pruning. I'm, a lot of gardeners would say that it is essential to do some pruning uh, to, for a plant to be healthy. Agreed. But in this and in this parable, the pruning, um, the pruning, the 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 protocol the gardener is proposing seems a lot less invasive. It's almost as if it's giving the fig tree agency, right? It's making the environment, it's putting out everything it needs, but the choice is still the fig trees. But the gardener's helping or trying to help. Exactly. Exactly. And it also brings to mind Jesus' whole big theme, theologically, his, his theological theme here and throughout his ministry, and that he gets very even more explicit on later, is he keeps saying, I'm just doing what I see the Father doing. I think you're right that we as disciples are in this parable in all these places. God is in these parable, this parable in all these places. Jesus is in this parable in all these places. We are all doing it together. Very interesting. Okay. Um, so, so I heard somebody say something. No? I think okay. it's a reverb. Okay. Sorry. Um, so the last question was a little bit tougher. Um, and it, it said, so how does what the gardener says he's going to do correlate to what Jesus said about perishing when Jesus was, the context of this is in the context of those people who get massacred, you know, and in while they're worshiping, it's kind of like what we would, we would, in our context, we would call it a, a, a shooter, an active shooter in, in the congregation, right? Okay. Where the, and Jesus says, those people weren't, you know, worshiping wrong. They weren't any worse than anybody else. Everybody will perish, mean, meaning being lost like sheep are lost, be ruined or destroyed, or even just being marred, being less than whole, less than perfect, less than, you know, God calls us through Abraham to be whole, perfect, walk blamelessly in front of God. And Jesus calls us to be whole and perfect, but Jesus provides for it by healing us. <laughs> it's not like we have to, you know, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Jesus is going to do it. Jesus is going to do it. So anything less than being whole and healed and perfect it is encompassed in that word perish. So if everyone is perishing unless they repent, meaning to change their minds or change their purpose, how does that re- relate to this fig tree and this gardener? They're related in Jesus' mind somehow. I sometimes I struggle to put it all together. You know, when you're teaching, um, and it's my inadequacy of understanding the Bible as much as I'd like to, and that's why I'm here. But today, it just is like could have had a V8. It worked for me. You know, it was like. The, the story, and this is in response to your question, the beautifully told story of how to handle um, 
disagreement and you know within your community within the disciple that to me was so instructive to get to the answer that you're looking for on that one which is you know you first go to the person then if that doesn't work you go to into a couple that to me is so gentle as opposed to just slaying people you know which is what you know you said shooter but in this case it was worshipers being slaughtered in the blood mixed in but it all fit together for me um and that's a gift <laughs> trust me I can, I can actually see that I can see how that fits in with this whole gardener thing of digging around the roots and giving it space and giving it the fertilizer it needs yes and that's our community we don't do this alone in my my theology we don't get to God alone we do it in community. And this to me illustrates that so beautifully. And that is very comforting that when I falter, there are people with arms open. And not baseball bats in their hands. No, right? no. With love and embrace and helpfulness. But yeah. could the fertilizer be God's word? Oh, mm-hmm. I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that. I like that. And and what about our our understanding of judgment? Um, Jesus, you know, this this whole I think y'all started this off by saying the landowner was judgmental, right? Right? But Jesus is is clearly offering an alternative that is not harsh. Mm-hmm. It, this fruit tree has had three chances already to bear fruit. I suspect this gardener has been giving it what it needs all along. But this time, the, the gardener is going to pay particular attention to this individual fruit tree. And what if the worst happens? It still doesn't, still doesn't produce fruit and the gardener has to cut it down. Have any of you all tried to cut down like a Bradford pear tree or any any tree? What happens when you cut down a tree? What happens to that stump? Well, the roots are still alive. And what does it do? It tries to come back. It gets these shoots coming up out of it, doesn't it? Unless it's unless it's died from the inside out, unless it's so diseased that even the roots have died. What happens? No, when, yeah. I'm I'm having a mini epiphany of my own right now, and I hope I can communicate it effectively. I was sharing with our Oak trees died, and we have little sprouts out in the front yard. But the sprouts aren't going to make it because they don't have the full base and anchor. And I have a fig tree. And I grew my fig tree from a cutting of a pruning of my friend's fig tree. She gave me the the pieces. I 
stuck five of them in the dirt and well, I stuck them in honey, stuck them in the dirt, and one took. It is now a huge fig tree in the backyard. But for many years, I didn't even put it in the ground because I didn't want it to go through a cold winter or anything because I wanted it to be stronger and bigger. Well, it went in the ground and it didn't produce fruit. And it didn't produce fruit. And it didn't produce fruit for a long time. This This tree's been out there a while. But I loved it because it was my tree that I grew from a piece of my friend's tree. So I had an emotional attachment to it. I cared about that tree, even though it wasn't productive like I had hoped or wanted. And now it is productive. However, the birds get all my fruit. I don't get any. I might get one or two figs. In a whole season, the birds are getting a lot, but my fig tree is feeding and nourishing others. And I'm just thinking it was a piece of a cut down tree that went on to establish its foundation and is now providing nourishment to those that need it even more than I do. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And that, I loved how you described that you, it didn't produce and it didn't produce and it didn't produce. And although that made you sad, you still loved that fig tree because it was your fig tree that you planted, that you, that you planted. How, isn't that a beautiful picture of how God sees us? That's how God sees us. And I want little fig trees. Yeah. (laughs) And and the and we we, we're supposed to produce. But God loves us anyway. And if we have to be cut down, those pieces, there's still life in those roots. We can still grow. We can still can still grow. You know, it's only the dead parts that are getting cut away, like Woody, like you talked about. I want you to remember to keep this parable bookmarked so that you remember it whenever someone's talking about how God's going to come in here and flash and burn and everybody that's not, you know, good enough is going to get burnt to a crisp and tossed out and only the good people get to go. That's not at all what this parable is communicating. You know, I think that if uh, if the gardener is, is God, I, I think if that if they waited another year and that, that fig tree still didn't produce fruit, I think the gardener would say, you know, let's give it one more year. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right. There is so much mercy in these stories. Isn't there? I think say that if after the year, the gardener might kind of parallel it to the first story, he might bring another gardener to kind of do something different and try to 
bring a fruit and then if that doesn't work maybe he brings the whole bunch of gardeners <laughs> kind of like what we learned about the other exactly. story i love these connections because this is the heart of the good news we are beginning to grasp deep in our hearts how good the good news is Amen. <laughs> right? I don't really have any more to say today. I'm just, oh. <laughs> just the beauty of this just sits in my heart. So we will, we will go for today unless you have more comments. And I will see you next week. <laughs>